This is episode 150 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, The Interrupted Legacy of Adam Schlesinger. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Today is our 150th episode, which somehow seems really momentous, and I'm so honored to have a new guest on the show. Dan Stalkup is with us. He's the editor of the website EarnThis.net and describes himself as a huge pop music fan, including a fan of Adam Schlesinger, the musician, singer, songwriter, producer, kind of music, everything we'll be talking about today. I actually found Dan through that website where he had posted a really lovely In Memoriam article to Adam after Adam passed away from COVID-19 complications on April 1st. So Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and I appreciate you uh, inviting me. Great. I think we'll have a great conversation today about a really interesting person. The website tagline is taking a thoughtful look at arts, entertainment, and pop culture. And that caught my eye. And I can attest that there's really a lot of great, uh, high quality content on the website. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about that, like how it got started? Sure. So um, I got really into music and movies late in high school, early in college. Uh, I spent a lot of time reading various critics and books and websites about uh, music, movies, other arts, TV, uh, particularly pop culture type arts, you know, mass media type stuff. Since middle school or so, I've always been really into writing and kind of emulating the, the things that I read and trying to write it. And so I've, you know, since that time also, been very interested in writing my own reviews, my own analyses mm-hmm. on pop culture and, uh, you know, things created as part of pop culture. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I met a few people who were also pretty into it, also some friends from high school. And I just had the idea, hey, why don't we, you know, I have a technical background. Why don't we create a website that's just a platform for us to write whatever type of stuff we want to write with the theme being that we'll try to emulate kind of distinct tastes, uh, cultivate good taste, uh, do like kind of thoughtful, in-depth pieces, um, you know, have an eye for kind of obscure uh, media or not obscure media if we just want to talk about whatever movie we saw in the theater or whatever album we just bought. Uh-huh. And over, that was in 2010. And then 10 years later, uh, we're certainly writing a lot less than we used to, but we've had over a million words and over a million readers over the past decade. It's been just a kind of a delight to to work on. Yeah, well, I I was really thrilled to find it. Uh, so your work has paid off, at least for me. Our topic today is Adam Schlesinger, and I'll just give a bit of background about him so people can place him in their minds. Uh, he died, as I say, April first at the very young age of fifty-two. Uh, he was a pop singer, songwriter, and musician. 
and a co-founder of two bands, which might ring bells for my listeners, Fountains of Wayne and Ivy. And Ivy is actually how I knew him. Uh, Tinted Windows, and he was a writer-producer for the band Fever High. He won three Emmys, a Grammy, an ASCAP Pop Music Award, and he was nominated for Academy, Tony, and Golden Globe Awards. I started counting and then quit how many songs and projects he's been involved in. But uh, So he's had songs in at least 16 films. Uh, he has songwriting credits in over 37 shows, uh, songs in at least three musicals, songs, I should say, four, at least three musicals, a bunch of music for Tony Awards and Emmy Awards, the shows. He's written for over 25 TV shows, and he's collaborated with Stephen Colbert, uh, Sarah Silverman, The Monkees, Robert Plant, America, They Might Be Giants, one of my favorites. And then I think you're going to talk about this for us. He wrote a zillion songs for the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and was apparently working on songs for a stage adaptation of The Nanny, which is really sorry that we're going to miss out on that. And once you start looking, it seems like he's he's just uh, everywhere. You described him in your memoriam as absurdly talented and prolific, um, also with the admonition, go to hell, COVID-19. So can you start us off by telling us how you knew about him and what he means to you? Yeah, absolutely. I've written about Adam a few times on uh, our site throughout the years. And um, one thing I wrote one time is when people have asked me, how did you discover Adam? Is there's not really one right answer to that because I've actually independently discovered him several times without not always realizing it. Right. Yeah, exactly. So he, um, one of his more famous works is, uh, he wrote the song for That Thing You Do, mm-hmm. the movie, the Tom Hanks directed and starring movie from 1996, I think it was. It's an extremely catchy song and it was one, a movie I watched a lot growing up. Mm. And I, of course, love the song. It's, it's really catchy and enjoyable. And then I also, in high school, liked the band Fountains of Wayne. Mm-hmm. I also liked this other song that was on the radio I thought was real catchy called Just the Girl by the band The Click Five. Oh, yeah, that's, on your, that's in your article. Yeah. And then, you know, over time, read album reviews, look at credits a little more closely, start to be like, whoa, hold on a second. This guy wrote all of these things <laughs> yeah. that I've discovered separately throughout the years with no obvious connection. It's not like his name is in the title of any of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would imagine, you know, that people probably know more of his work than they realize they know. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, just a comment about that thing you do. Of course, I had to go listen to a whole bunch of his work yesterday, which was really fun. But that song, that thing you do, I think you mentioned in your article or other people have, it really does sound like it comes from the 60s. And to me, it actually really sounds like it comes from the Beatles. Yeah, I think you're highlighting one of his, I mean, he has a ton of strengths and skills as a songwriter. And one that you see on that and you see really in his tremendous output on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is he could inhabit so many different styles. Mm -hmm. You know, he could write 60s bubblegum pop. He could write something that sounded like a big dramatic torch song. He could write singer songwriter. He could write bratty pop. He could write everything. And I mean, that thing you do is a perfect example. It sounds like you said, like a hit from the 60s, maybe from the Beatles or some Beatlesque band. Mm-hmm. It really does feel like a lost gem from there. And that, that's something you see repeatedly in his, his work that 
it's just sounds like a gem that got lost, you know, from some era or some style. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. There's another one uh, that you describe as a wham knockoff, meaningless kiss. And you have a clip to that on your website with uh, Hugh Grant. And you say it's a better George Michael song than most George Michael songs, which which I actually thought was true. I listened to it. And, it, you know, it, yeah, as you say, he's just got this uh, knack for nailing these uh, various genres. Did you Did you understand or figure out along the way, like, where that education came from or where that kind of music ability came from. I noticed on his Wikipedia page, it said he had a BA in uh, philosophy of all things. But did you ever figure out like where all this music came from for him? Yeah, I mean, obviously with anyone this talented, it's going to be a combination of nature and nurture. You know, he's mm. definitely a genius. Sometimes when people hear artists or genius, they think of the torture genius who has this, I don't know, very uh, personal expressive style you know, think of Van Gogh, he was channeling his inner demons, but the type of genius that uh, Adam was is that he would um, be able to absorb and then transmute all these different styles, you know, so I think he really is in some sense a genius that he has this innate gift that, uh, you know, you can't learn. And I think he, that's something that's just special with him. But I also think you see a couple things in his background that kind of pointed him towards this. He grew up in a family of, uh, I'm not sure if they were musicians or if they were showbiz people, but both of his parents were in the arts in some way. I see. And so I think that was cultivated. And although, yeah, he did, uh, I think you're right, he got his degree in philosophy, but he was in various arts schools and arts programs. He started a band when he was in high school that just, you know, performed locally. And he's always written so much. And he talked, I, I read some interviews by him, he said that he had a huge appetite for listening to a wide variety of music, mm. particularly pop music, rock music from just of all uh, decades, genres, uh, levels of critical esteem. And he came to appreciate that things that are often dismissed as bubblegum or, you know, insubstantial often have tremendous craft behind them. And I think that's something, but when I think about what, unifies his work is that he has such dedication to his craft his songwriting craft that really carries through in the variety and the consistent quality and just how prolific how much he did so you know again i kind of <laughs> diverged a little bit there from your initial question but i think it was a combination of his background his personality type dedication to that craft and just he has this natural talent yeah, it's interesting. One of the things I appreciated about your website is the seriousness that you attribute and take from pop culture. Because I think, you know, if we were living in the void, maybe pop culture wouldn't be the most important thing on the planet. But what makes it really important to me is the effect that it has on young people. And I think for many people, having music in your lives during middle school and high school is it really literally a lifesaver if we didn't have that kind of connection to other people. And I really sense that when I read the comments to a lot of his songs, just how profoundly impacted people were by, you know, you get, you come, you come for the hook, but you stay for the lyrics kind of. And he has that song Hackensack, which is about Hackensack, New Jersey, 
and again, I was just so moved reading the comments to that song, but also really impressed by the lyrics. He's got some lines in there. I used to work in a record store. Now I work for my dad, scraping the paint off of hardwood floors. The hours are pretty bad. I, I just really want to comment about how he could touch people with his words. Absolutely. he He's a fantastic writer, both lyrics and um, the music, of course. And the the lyrics, one thing that I always admire that you just touched on is, although he was extremely funny, and if you kind of look for a thread that unites his stuff, uh, one thing you might see is that he's often had some element of satire or some element of joke comedy to it. And mm-hmm. even the stuff that isn't comedic intentionally often has funny lines or funny flourishes to it. Yeah. But, you know, it's easy for satire to become mean. And he had such, he treated the characters he wrote about with dignity. Like the character in Hackensack, it's a, it's one of my favorite songs by him. Uh, it's by the, the Fountains of Wayne. He talks about, it's basically a guy is in love with a girl who, from his hometown, who's hit it big. And he kind of has been in love with her and dreams of her coming back. And he lives this kind of not so great life. You highlighted a lyric. He talks about how he scrapes paint off the floor, but it also doesn't really make fun of him. It's not like at his expense. No. Right. It's his feelings are legitimate. Yes, They're real. They're treated expressively, everything. So yeah, that was definitely a skill of his. Yeah. It was funny to go through his work because at times, I mean, there's so much of it, right. But, but there are, as you say, some themes and one of them that struck me is some of the titles that he chooses are pretty hilarious and also very contemporary. So a couple that he had was like jerk face, loser boyfriend, which that's just so now. Uh, it's not just for gays anymore. And then uh, antidepressants are so not a big deal. And that one especially reminded me of Tom Lair and Tom Lair is before your time. Actually, Tom Lair is before my time. But he also had this combination of kind of silly, but also contemporary, sort of lighthearted commentary on our times, but combined with, well, serious music skills, but also, you know, willing to to comment on everyday things and, and as you say, legitimize them and take them seriously. Right. Another example of, uh, of a, I guess, a title that uh, suggests a certain silliness to it, perhaps, or a playfulness to it is uh, a few years ago, he wrote a song called Text Me Merry Christmas. Oh, yes, which is a great song. Really it's, great. It's fantastic. It's both satire, but it also, I mean, I, the hook itself is phenomenal. It's by uh, Straight No Chaser, which is an acapella group with Kristen Bell, yep. um, the actress, guesting as the lead vocal. And it's, I mean, it's funny. It's got so many funny lines. The tune is, and hooks are incredible, but it also has this like undercurrent of earnestness to it that mm-hmm. it, that kind of uh, belies the title that you would think it's, oh, they're just making fun of the shallowness of texting. But it, it's, it also kind of, there's, there's a, a seriousness to it too, that he, he just could really find that, that line. And, you know, he kind of sometimes would be more silly, sometimes would be more playful. His, his biggest hit ever is Stacy's mom fountains of Wayne. Mm-hmm. And that one, it, it's got a couple of lines in it, but that one's kind of more purely silly than some of his other stuff. Hackensack in his, his last couple albums with fountains of Wayne, he talked a little bit more about um, 
growing up and becoming an adult and it, the writing got a little more serious. Uh, he had one called Action Hero in his last album with Fountains of Wayne. That album's called Sky Full of Holes, mm-hmm. where he uh, basically talked about uh, how being a dad is being an underappreciated action hero. And <laughs> as a recent dad myself, I found it really moving that, you know, he could do that earnestness as well as the the silliness that he often guest wrote for other people or, or did earlier in his career too. Yeah, I think that's Stacy's mom. I, I that song sounded very familiar, so I've surely heard that along the way. And that one, I think, did get pretty uh, pretty well known. And that's off the album, which is if I have this right, this album that has this hilarious title of "Welcome Interstate Managers." Yes, that is not only, in my opinion, their best album, they being Fountains of Wayne, but that's in my personal top five albums rock albums ever it's uh it's uh that is the one that's their biggest hit and that that, yeah that's i think 2003 is the year that that came out yeah these titles are just great but to just uh, comment there about text me merry christmas what you are exactly right it's super catchy but it also is a really appropriate christmas song and i'm a huge collector of christmas songs and it, you know, it just fits right in, right? It, it captures everything about what that holiday means, the the sweetness of it and the uh, kind of goofiness of it too. And uh, to go back to the Welcome Interstate Managers, I'm not sure I have the song title of this, but there's this great line that he has, which I, I saw the video of them performing live. I have a new computer and a bright future in sales. Yeah, that's a early so- a song on the album. It's like one of the first three or four tracks that um, if you listen closely to the lyrics, it's um, I mean, the guy keeps talking, the narrator keeps talking about how he has all these <laughs> interesting opportunities. He's flying to a meeting somewhere and it always kind of or he has a he has a business party he's going to or something. And it always devolves into him drinking too much. Oh, yeah the bright future in sales is kind of like a tongue in cheek thing. He doesn't probably doesn't have much of a bright future in anything. If he can't get that. Under control. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. There was another one. So you mentioned in the article that you dedicated a week to him. Uh, you did like a song a day uh, project in 2018 and you dedicated a week to him. And I think that was where you brought up the song Yolanda Hayes, which is, probably my favorite of everything that I listened to yesterday. So yeah, tell us about that song. Yeah, Yolanda Hayes, It's uh, <laughs> I'm glad that you liked it. It's actually not one of their better known songs. It's just an album track off of one of their later, less popular albums. But the narrator is basically waiting in line at the DMV. Uh, things are kind of ho-hum and he's observing all these people and he <laughs> falls for this uh, this woman who who works at the desk named Yolanda Hayes. And it's just kind of a sweet tune of like wondering, it's got a lot of layers to it, wondering what other people, what are other people's lives like that you just kind of encounter on the street? Mm. What are they really like? And also just these random little bits of connection. And of course it has funny lines in it too, because almost all of his songs have one or more funny lines in them. And one of my favorites from that is he says, she asks him for six forms of ID. And if you've ever been to a DMV, you know that it's a paperwork <laughs> <Right>? nightmare. <laughs> well, I, in terms of the origin of his 
of his titles and names and things, it does make you wonder if he actually did encounter somebody whose name is Yolanda Hayes, because it's such a great name. And it does have this kind of found poetry feel to it. And the Fountains of Wayne sounds like it must have been a made up name. You know, somehow you just think, oh, yeah, somebody came up with that. But according to something that I read, it actually is the name of like a lawn art place in New Jersey. So Fountains of Wayne. It reminds me of Everything But the Girl, which was the name of a furniture store in Hull, England, where the band Everything But the Girl came from. So they just grabbed it off a storefront as he did of, of Fountains of Wayne. But you know, it's it kind of makes me see the world through his eyes, right? That he could go around and and run across a woman at the DMV named Yolanda Hayes or or drive by a store named Fountains of Wayne and think, nah, that that works. I can work with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a couple of thoughts there. One, I mean, to your point that it makes you wonder if he actually had this experience himself or actually met a woman with this name. He, Adam had just such a tremendous uh, talent for inhabiting characters and inhabiting situations and and you see that that's just you know all of his music he could he could do different styles different viewpoints uh but but he was so good at that that normally you think of like really heavy stuff for people who like can really inhabit characters and think about it from their perspectives and one of the things i loved about his writing is that he did it for just everyday people and often in playful or kind of uh insignificant ways but he he just had this empathy and this ability to get inside the brain of someone else. And to to go back to the comment about the name Fountains of Wayne, I, I have read that about the, the store. And my but my theory has always been that the reason that he chose that specifically is because it plays like a, uh, a twist on the uh, famous musician Wayne Fontana. It's basically that in reverse, oh. but it also comes from the store. So that. That's been my theory. I haven't seen that confirmed anywhere. Oh, it has a it has a double meaning. Aha. Right. Yeah, layers of of complexity. Well, your comment about the characters, I I think, you know, it just seems to really resonate with people. And I was reading comments from people about what he meant to them and what his music meant to them. It's clear that he has tapped into something really huge for people. And you I had a term in your article. You called it low stakes, no angst, suburban drama. What what do you mean by that? Yeah, some of the stuff we've already talked about here, but I mean, just kind of to expand on it, a lot of times when you think of music that's about teens or young people, it's often either glib or it's very like dramatic. And I'm thinking like like intense heartbreak songs or like dramatic first love, true love songs. And, you know, I, I do think there's a place for that into your previous comment that often young people connect with that type of stuff because they're experiencing these things in real ways for the first time. But one of the things that, especially as I get older, that I really love about Fountains of Wayne is he wrote songs um, that didn't have that intensity necessarily, that didn't have that huge kind of emotional starkness to it. And I think we talked about uh, Hackensack. It's a good example where it's just about this guy who, you know, scrapes paint off the floor, but is in love with a movie star that he grew up with. And there's there's so many other examples that, that we already talked about in uh, Bright Future and Sales, the alcoholic who can't quite get his, his life right. You know, uh, by 
taking these kind of more normal people. Stacy's mom, famously just about a teen who has a crush on his uh, friend's mom. Mm-hmm. By taking these things and like writing about these kind of uh, characters and situations that in a way that it has like a little, a little bit of, it's not that it's like completely an insubstantial thing that it, it treats the feelings as real, but it doesn't inject it with too much angst or too much drama to it. It's kind of a low key element while still taking the, the characters and the situation seriously. And I think he had a really unique viewpoint and tremendous ability to kind of write that type of music. Yeah, I think that's right. A lot of, a lot of songs that are kind of over dramatized partly are that way because of the orchestration. And one of the things I really liked about Fountains of Wayne is that the music is quite spare. And I, somehow I often think that makes it more intense, really. It's sort of like the Velvet Underground feel of, uh, yeah, just a few uh, musical instruments and some pretty powerful lyrics and the whole thing, because it's, it's not, it doesn't take itself too seriously. It becomes more meaningful to the, to the listener. I think that's, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think if you kind of go through their entire discography, some of their stuff is a little more produced, not, Uh not too much, not like overproduced, but I think you're definitely right that some of his most evocative and most, some of his most uh, effective music is the stuff that is much lower produced. And one example is, um, again, off of Welcome Interstate Managers is uh, a song called All Kinds of Time is what it's called. And it's Mm. uh, the perspective of a high school quarterback who basically sees a receiver downfield. And it's a play on the phrase that football announcers use for a quarterback who is getting good blocks or whatever, that he has all kinds of time Uh there to pass the ball. Uh But it transforms it into this he he basically thinks of this moment where his family is watching him and where he uh, he's connected to all these people who are around him and how he has all kinds of time in the world to kind of, you know, he's a high school quarterback. He has all kinds of time to live his life and to embrace these connections and have these experiences. And without being too on the nose about it, he also, it's, it's extremely evocative. And I would say very moving because in the context of his uh, young death, uh, that he has this beautiful song about someone kind of looking towards their future. Mm. And that's an example of a song that does not have the intense production values, but manages to wring so much emotion and power out of simple orchestration, simple lyrics, fairly simple premise. And I, I would say it's in, in the context of his death, that's become one of his most moving and powerful tracks. I see. Well, I definitely have to go listen to that. I did not uh, run across that yesterday when I was doing my uh, huge Adam uh, exploration. Well, that's the problem is he's he's written so many songs and for so many different bands and projects that he uh, it's it's tough to try and listen to it all. I certainly haven't listened to it all. So I, I don't blame you at all for letting one slip through the cracks. <laughs> well, there's just more for me to listen to, which I look forward to. I was not surprised to discover somehow that he'd hooked up with the monkeys. And they, when I was first listening yesterday, they came to mind. You know, they're really fun, uh, catchy songs also from back then. Uh, but also, you know, really touching. I mean, it's funny how the monkeys were such a meaningful band to people back then. Uh, even though, you know, their songs weren't very profound. Uh, So I wasn't surprised that their paths had crossed somehow that, you know, even though they're uh, several generations apart, that they found each other. 
Yeah, they have a lot of common there. That project was really cool. I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but the monkeys who are obviously the ones who are still alive are much older now. Mm -hmm. They got a bunch of famous musicians to write songs for them. And so it was like one song per musician, basically. And then they recorded them. Oh. And Adams was, in my opinion, the best on that album. And mm. it was the single. And you're right. It's just a perfect meshing of styles. He carries the torch. And, and we already talked a little bit about this, of uh, music that may not be deemed serious by the, the real intellectuals, but there's tremendous craft there. It has an ability to connect with younger people or just listeners in general. Yeah, as he got older, he started taking on different kinds of projects. And I'm just going to mention a few things here for the listeners in case they're not blown away <laughs> enough already. So he did the soundtrack to Cry Baby, which I just think is a fantastic uh, show. And also Josie and the Pussycats for, for people whose mouths are now hanging open. And then talk to us about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, because th this seems like just an unbelievable undertaking. Yeah. So it's, um, if you read much about TV, uh, you know, it's one thing to do a Broadway show or to do a movie that's a musical because you have a finite set of songs, you know, it might be 20 songs mm -hmm. and you're not really necessarily under a deadline to produce those. You can write a musical and the musical, it could take a year to write. It could take five years to write, but you know, as long as it's done when the musical is ready, then, you know, you have your 20 songs or however many you need for, for that. But TV, it's so difficult to do truly original musicals because in general, TV shows, they come out once a week. They have somewhere between, I don't know, 10 to 25 episodes a season. Mm -hmm. Even if you're just doing one or maybe two songs an episode, that type of writing deadline, writing regimen is is absolutely ridiculous. I, I, it's just so much more. I mean, it's got a fitting character. It's got to be mm. catchy enough and engaging enough to actually be worth having the actors sing it. It's got to be, have a composition. And so uh, Adam was one of three writers for the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend show that ran, I think it ran four seasons. Mm. They produced over 150 songs. Wee. Go ahead. No, no, I was so, just exclaiming that's a lot of yeah. songs. <laughs> and some episodes had multiple songs. I mean, the more you dig into it, the more ridiculous it is because <laughs> it had to fit in character, of course. It had to be for specific characters in their voice and in their thought process. Oh. It had to be churned out every single week. But also, I don't know if this was like part of their mission statement or it's just the way the show evolved, but they touched so many styles of music. They have uh, one of my favorites is called What'll It Be? Mm. And it's basically a, it's a piano man pastiche, a Billy Joel piano man pastiche. And oh, yeah. The video of him performing that live is actually on your website. That was one yeah, of the few yeah. things I found of him performing live. Right. Yeah. He he was usually behind the scenes. And mm -hmm. uh, if you go to the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend soundtrack, the only time I've ever seen uh, a song where the art listed artist is Adam Schlesinger is a, a demo he recorded that got added to the, of, of what'll it be added to the crazy ex-girlfriend soundtrack. Oh, I see. They did 100, 150 songs, so many different styles. Uh, the music in general was regarded as very well done. I, I don't think he did much in the choreography, but the show itself had really good choreography. Uh-huh. You know, some of the humor there is not exactly my taste in humor, but it's just such a tremendously accomplishment. I mean, like a tremendous accomplishment, I guess, and monumental in the sense of being impressive and also being very good and kind of worth remembering much of the music, I would say. 
Yeah, as as I was working through uh, all this stuff yesterday, my podcast, you know, is about work and working, which I expand to include pretty much anything I'm interested in talking about. But we haven't talked very much about the band Ivy, which, you know, again, you look at it, it's like, oh, my gosh, here's a whole other person's worth of work. Six albums they did over 15 years. And so, you know, at some point you ask yourself, did the man ever sleep? <laughs> And, you know, he just was an incredibly productive person. And as I was learning more about his work, I just, you know, this image developed of a person who, as you say, is often behind the scenes, but obviously very well known to a lot of people, right? I mean, you can tell after his passing how many people knew his name and had been really affected by him. But just his dedication to his work you know that that must have just been such a huge part of his life absolutely yeah i mean to your point about uh the i would say name recognition the interesting thing is i bet if you talk to like a random person on the street the odds are very low they would know who is adam schlesinger because he was so behind the scenes but when he passed the outpouring from people in the music industry and the film industry and the tv industry was it blew me away. Everyone had an Adam story or an Adam tribute to make. Music critics who had been on interviews and on shows and tours wrote these just gushing outpourings. I mean, he clearly had an impact, an outsized impact beyond his fame to the the public person. And I think mm-hmm. uh, he got some attention because of all of that credit he received when he passed away, all that that uh, acclaim he received for sure. Yeah, it's a reminder to all of us that people who become famous are not necessarily the people who are working the hardest and that fame is a you know is a fickle thing and there can be really interesting and exciting people that you haven't yet heard of. I think that's just you know that's a cool thing about being a human being right now is that there's a lot out there for you to explore. Absolutely. He, to me, he's kind of emblematic of the type of creative that I personally aspire to be someone who, who thinks of their work or their, their creative output as a craft that they need to dedicate to, that they need to work on, that the end result isn't necessarily fame or, you know, mountains of cash or being on the, the cover of a magazine, but for the the value of creating something and having contributed to this culture and this world and connected with people through their art by dedicating themselves to this craft in a very meticulous way. And I, that's why, you know, I, my wife and I always often have these conversations, who would you most want to have lunch with or most want to have a dinner with or a drink at a bar or something. And and for me, Adam was always near the top of that list because I, I just think he brings such a cool and not often glamorized approach to to creating and to working and to the, just this mindset is is really cool and obviously he was a brilliant guy too and I, I just I, I find so much to admire in what he he was able to create in his unfortunately shortened life yeah that's the thing I think since he died so young uh, but was so productive during the life that he had of course I'm extremely regretful that we didn't have another you know 30 years of work from him, but I am very grateful that he was so productive during those 52 years. And it does raise questions in my mind about what you leave behind, what your legacy is, and and really 
you know, is that an inspiration to so many of us is, you know, don't focus on the fame or the money. Think about what you leave behind because what he has left behind is really going to be treasured for a long time by a lot of people. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because you have, when you're a creative, that's kind of where I think about legacy the most because there you're actually like making physical or perhaps digital things that are being embraced by people. And I think you're right that people sometimes get caught up in the rat race of fame or trying to be the richest or the most glamorous or have the, the highest, the friends who were the uh, cover stars. The biggest followers. <laughs> and I think this is obviously an exaggeration because, uh, you know, you're comparing a, a songwriter from the past 25 years to the most acclaimed composer perhaps ever. But I, I, when he passed, I actually thought of Mozart because Mozart died at 35. He died poor. He died in not good. Uh, he, he was not very well liked. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the movie Amadeus, but mm-hmm. that kind of shows how he was had kind of spiraled even though that's a dramatized version of his life story. But, mm-hmm. uh, but he produced just, I mean, he changed the shape of music. And I'm not saying Adam had that impact, but I think if you are focused on your craft, on your creation, on taking ideas and getting them out there and making it better as you do more of it, I think that's where you really get legacy, something that people are going to look back on and remember and spend a lot of time thinking about and bringing into their own tastes and their own style. And I think Adam Schlesinger did a, for 52 years, he did a lot of that. And it's, um, it blows me away and it's, it's kind of an inspiration. Yeah. It, it's one of the reasons that I like talking about work on my podcast. I mean, work has always been very important to me in all kinds of different ways, but a lot of times I think you know, we have sort of a bad attitude toward work, like, oh, work, who wants to talk about that? And that's really sad to me because I think humans are very often excited about their productivity. But here we have a terrific case. My sense is that Adam was extremely stimulated by his work and that each project sort of fired him up in a different way. There wasn't enough time in the day for all the things for him to do. There weren't enough notes in the world for him to say all the things he wanted to say. To me, that's just such an inspiration to other people out there who may be feeling a little disheartened by the world, especially now the world can be a, a pretty tough place, but to use him as an example of how you kind of get re, re-energized and re-inspired to produce something that, as you say, for a creative, you get to leave behind. Yeah, definitely. He actually did, um, this I think was in a tribute from one of his crazy ex-girlfriend uh, uh, colleagues, basically said that, you know, with the grind of what they would do day in, day out, it was exhausting, of course. And some people found it dispiriting how hard they had to work to make this thing that they were so proud of. But he would come in every day and work just as hard as everyone. But his attitude was, I have the best job in the world. I get to do the most things, the most interesting things, share it, the most stuff, just be a part of building this incredible thing that uh, is a testament to you know, his capabilities and his dedication. And I, I think you're right that if you kind of generalize some of the ways that he think to 
other aspects of work is he really managed to connect with his work and see its value and and just kind of be proud in the accomplishment of having seen it through. And that brought him intrinsic joy. And that's obviously a very difficult thing to find and a difficult thing to cultivate. And that's another reason that I, I find him really inspiring. Yeah, just to comment to my guesses, though I didn't read very much about his personality or his personal life to accomplish this much, my guess is you have to be a pretty agreeable person, you know, a pretty good collaborator and a, and a nice person, right? I don't know if you got a feel for any of that in, in your research. Yeah. Um, you know, I've actually gotten mixed things on that. Obviously, I think what you said goes, it, it almost goes without saying, you can't be one of the most beloved people in music in terms of just having this widespread impact and appreciation if you're a jerk, if you can't work with other people. In fact, Fountains of Wayne lasted how many years? And that was essentially a partnership with one person. Mm-hmm. You know, I did read a handful of stories uh, where he would butt heads with people or he would be known to like have strong opinions. And so you, you kind of don't necessarily know exactly what he was like to work with day in, day out. I mean, I think you're right. You have to be a great collaborator. I think you also have to have a decisiveness to you and an ability to kind of uh, home in on the thing that is whatever you're trying to do or trying to solve or trying to create and kind of envision that. And so um, he de- absolutely was a, a phenomenal collaborator, and he, but he also didn't do it kind of at the sacrifice of his own voice. Yeah, that's right. We were talking a little bit before the show about taste. And yeah, my, that's my guess that he had a pretty, pretty high standards and a pretty cultivated taste because there's so little of his work that's kind of crappy, right? It's it's all true in its spirit. Absolutely. Yeah. He he soaked it all in. And you know, I've already mentioned this that he had a love for music that was critically acclaimed, not critically acclaimed best-selling, not best-selling, every genre on the planet. And he he absorbed it all and built his own unique vision of music and unique taste that it could just put it out there in different ways. And I, I absolutely think that that is part of the reason he was able to accomplish so much. Yeah, I'm hopeful that many other people, including my listeners, will go on an Adam journey as I did yesterday because there's so much for them to explore. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about legacy? And well, I guess two questions, just that open question about legacy, but also how does it make you feel as a person who really appreciated him during his lifetime to know that so many of us now will really only get to know him after his death? Um, I think to answer your second question, I welcome everyone to look back on his career and to be excited about what he did and to kind of see, you know, you can follow his evolution from, you know, his very first Fountains of Wayne and Ivy albums where he was clearly the perspective of a a, a wonderkind looking out at the world mm. to experience it for the first time. And as he, became more kind of an elder statesman, reflective type as he got older, chameleon who could inhabit the shoes of anyone. It's a great journey to take. And, you know, it's extremely sad. I said, I I read one article that basically said, pointed out that, you know, in some ways we we missed basically the the last act of his career. And it could have been something along the lines of Richard Rogers, who wrote The Sound of Music, you know, when he was about Adam's age and had got tons of awards in his last 
few decades of his life. And it's, it's devastating that we missed out on that part of his career. And, you know, it's kind of heartbreaking. It's, it's yeah. a double-edged sword when someone has, has lived this great of life and did so much stuff, but also probably still had stuff in the tank. Yeah. So I, I think that that's, I've been thinking a lot about that since he passed and how, how admirable that is that he kind of left it all out there, but also how sad it is that he still had more to give. Mm-hmm. You know, especially in the context, of, I'm a recent father just in the past few years for the first time, thinking about how part of my legacy is is building things in the physical sense and the emotional and spiritual sense with my family, just taking inspiration from all over for how I kind of build this world for my my family, the next generation, and wanting to be a part of shaping that for the better. And, you know, you might think, okay, he wrote a song about a guy who's in love with his best friend's mom. Is that really a uh, contributing much to the world? But every little thing does. And especially if you do it the right way and like make it good and make it worth thinking about and remembering. I, I do think so. And uh, just kind of, I know that's a little bit abstract, but that's kind of been one of my philosophical takeaways from thinking a lot about his life is just really emphasizing that I want to be a part of shaping the culture and the, the vision of, of, the, of the next generation. Well, you certainly are involved in a lot of different projects, and I did uh, realize yesterday that you'd become a new father. And, you know, my personal opinion is absolutely children form a legacy. And so shout out to all the parents out there that are struggling with uh, kids at home and trying to do their jobs while their kids are at home. And uh, I think it's been a wake-up call for a, a lot of people that Oh, it turns out taking care of children is a full-time job. Oh, <laughs> so now I'm being asked to do two jobs at once. But yeah, I mean, that I do think that children form our legacy. And also, you know, as you say, leaving something behind for them to appreciate is, you know, I'll go back to, to uh, Tom Lehrer there. You know, his music continues to be appreciated by generations that, that came after him or even the monkeys. So yeah, it's a it's kind of a beautiful story, but I agree it's really sad that we missed out on his on the last stage of his career, which is often when things kind of come together for creatives. They they really move into a new new realm, and and we won't know what that looked like for Adam. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, thank you again for for having me the, on to talk about it. My friends and colleagues are getting tired of me bringing it up that, you know, sending some song that I've been listening to or whatever along the way. So I appreciate the chance to kind of uh, talk about it with someone who hasn't heard me talk about it a hundred times in the last two or three months. No, I really appreciate you uh, educating us about it. And before I let you go, because I know you have uh, a child to go back to, is there anything you'd like to share with the listeners, like how, how they could follow your work or anything you'd like to refer them to? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you just go to our website, earnthis.net, if you're interested in uh, reading more about kind of this type of stuff we've talked about here, I would encourage you to, to click over there. We don't publish all that often, you know, once every month or two. It used to be more, but you can click through our archives. You can join us there. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at StalkUpDan. I, I tweet more about professional stuff, but every now and then I'll tweet about things along this line that I either find or I write or I create. So feel free to join me there. Yeah, cool. And thank you so much for writing the article, educating us and being on the show and being a dad. Thank you so much. I'm happy to to be a part of this. Thanks for listening, everybody. 
Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes, airing on Tuesday and Friday, and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.